Welcome to the Electric Wire podcast. We bring you news and views on the most pressing issues facing Wisconsin's electric industry from policymakers, executives, and customer and environmental advocates. Bringing you these discussions, we are the Customers First Coalition. Here's your host, Executive Director Kristen Jilks. Welcome, listeners, to the Electric Wire. I am Kristen Jilks, and I am joined today by a co-host, Rob Richard. Rob is the Director of Government Affairs for the Wisconsin Electric Cooperative Association, or WECA. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Kristen. Thank you very much for having me. We have a very special episode today. As many of our listeners know, this is the third in a series of three podcast episodes dedicated to the different utility models operating in Wisconsin which include investor-owned utilities and municipal utilities and electric co-ops. And this is the final episode in that series. And today we're focusing on electric co-ops. And I could not be more excited about the panel we have assembled. But before we get there, Rob, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about WECA and your role in uniting the electric cooperatives. Sure. So the Wisconsin Electric Cooperative Association is the nation's oldest uh, statewide association representing electric cooperatives. We go back to, to the mid-1930s. We represent the 24 distribution cooperatives uh, in the state, mostly on the western side primarily, but you know, we also have uh, Oconto and, and Washington that kind of reached on, on the eastern side. We, we also have Daryl and Power Cooperative, which is the lone GNT or the Generation Interest Transmission Cooperative that basically supplies the wholesale power to 18 of our cooperatives here in the state. As an association, we have about 250,000 homes, farms, and businesses that are on our lines representing 600,000 individuals which is about one-tenth of Wisconsin's population that are on our lines. Perfect. Thank you for making that distinction between Darylin Power Cooperative and the rest of the distribution cooperatives that make up your association. One note before we turn it over to the panel, Steve Fries, who is the president and CEO of the Wisconsin Electric Cooperative Association, is out on medical leave, so he could not be here today, but we wanted to tell him we're wishing him the very best and we're all thinking about him. Yeah, um, if people don't know, you know, Steve um, was diagnosed with cancer earlier this year, um, but he is he is fighting the battle and he's doing remarkably well. So we we completely uh, expect Steve to be back, hopefully sometime uh, after the first of the year. Well, again, thinking of you, Steve, and can't wait to see you back. I want to give you a little bit better sense of who our panelists are and where they are from across Wisconsin. So if you look at the video version of this episode either through Spotify or YouTube, you can see the maps and pictures of our panelists. Otherwise, we will link to the websites of each of these cooperatives in the show notes. So we'll start with Robert Cornell. Robert is the manager of the Washington Island Electric Co-op in far eastern Wisconsin. It's the island off of Door County. Our next panelist is Monica Obricki. Monica is the president and CEO at the Eau Claire Energy Cooperative in northwestern Wisconsin. Monica has been in that position since about May of this year up in Price County at the Price Electric Cooperative. We have board member Karen Newberry. Karen is on the board of directors for Price Electric Cooperative, and she's also on the board of directors for the WECA 
and Dairyland Power Cooperative. Rounding out our panel is Nate Betcher. Nate is the president and CEO of Pierce Pepin Cooperative in the far western part of the state. Some even call it part of the exurbs of Minneapolis. And Nate brings that perspective and balancing both the urban and rural aspects of their membership. All right, with that, we will turn it over to our panel representing electric cooperatives from across the state. Welcome to our panel. Robert, we're going to start off with you. Tell us more about yourself and how you became involved in electric co-ops. Well, I was born and raised here on Washington Island. And I left and went and got a degree in electrical engineering and worked in manufacturing for probably 18 years. Always intended on coming back to the island at some point. I, in fact, even told my wife that it could be two months, it could be 20 years when we first started dating. So it turned out to be closer to 20 years. Ended up applying for the job when the previous manager retired after 40 years and uh, was lucky enough to get it. So I'm, I'm actually proof that you can come home. That's awesome. Monica, you're next. What about you? Well, I still am a little bit considered baby terms in co-op world because I've only been with the co-op for 10 years. So people <laughs> stay with the co-op for a very long time. And um, I started uh, 10 years ago as the executive assistant to the board of directors. And then over the years have added responsibility in human resources, marketing communications and member services. And most recently, um, assumed the CEO role uh, May 1st of this year. So um, new, new in the role and have a lot to learn, but um, it's exciting, exciting time to be in the cooperative and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Congratulations. We love to see it. Karen, how about you? How long have you been with the co-op? Since uh, 2016, I got onto our local board. And then I think it was 2019, I got onto the Dairyland board, which is our uh, generation and transmission for pretty much most co-ops in the state of Wisconsin. Well, 24 of them in the state of Wisconsin. So um, a gentleman that was on the board seen a need for diversity. So he had asked me if I would be interested in running for the local board. And um, it was just so different from what I was currently doing in my job. And the value of a co-op is always what's really um, kindred my spirit, uh, the seven principles and just how we treat members. And so I've just, you know, then um, about two years ago, I got onto the, the state board, which is a WECA board and just been absorbing everything I can from the different boards and then trying to share that with any members that are either locally or when I've traveled and, and gone to Madison or lacrosse, you know, just trying to share all the information with them. I think that's so important to share stories from around the state, especially when policymakers are considering proposals in Madison. So thanks for what you do. All right, Nate, let's go to you. Tell us your story. Yeah, thanks, Kristen. Thanks for having us on the, the podcast today. It's always great to share our co-op stories with uh, those that, that aren't familiar with our story. My uh, Mine probably took a little bit more of a, a roundabout way than, than maybe some of the others. Um, I actually, uh, when I graduated from college, I was working for a, a physician who had a, a supplement line and uh, started looking at technology back then uh, with uh, with being able to offer e-commerce. And, and uh, that sort of led me to a career working for a company that actually provided software solutions for telephone and electric cooperatives across the country. And uh, at the time I was living in North Dakota, I ended up moving with that company to uh, St. Louis. I uh, thought we'd live in St. Louis for three to five years. Uh, three to five years turned into eight. 
uh, as we started having uh, children and wanted to be a little bit closer to family, uh, we started looking for opportunities that um, sort of would allow us to, to move closer uh, back to family. And so um, that's how I ended up at Pierce Pepin uh, in, in Ellsworth here. And um, uh, my family's originally from the, the Menominee uh, area. And so we've got a long uh, family roots uh, that run deep in, in Western Wisconsin. And this was a great opportunity for us to, to get back a little bit closer uh, to Pierce Pepin. And, and, and actually in, in a lot of ways to kind of sit on the other side of, of what I knew from my previous life, um, which, was, which was providing solutions to the market to, to being one that consumes those. And, and, uh, and, and the, really there's a lot of parallels in, in both because both were there, um, both companies were there to set up, uh, were set up to serve their members and to provide a service uh, for, for their membership. So I've uh, been able to take a lot of those principles that I had at my previous company and bring them here to, to Pierce Pepin to, to enable us to help our members live better. Thank you. Now let's move on to talk about the co-ops that you represent. I want to know more about the co-op's role in the communities that you serve, how long you've been around, how many customers you have, and what makes your co-op unique. Monica, can we start with you on this one? I'm with Eau Claire Energy Cooperative, and we serve 12,000 members in our community, mostly in Eau Claire County, but we touch on several counties that surround us. Karen mentioned the seven cooperative principles, and you know, we the principle of commitment to community is something that's been very important to us throughout our 87 year history. And um, it's something that, you know, we focus on as an employee team. Um, how can we um, engage our community, not only to educate them about cooperatives, but educate them about energy and all related things to um, the energy world. So I think what makes us a little bit unique is that um, we have a pretty large commercial and industrial load because of our proximity to Eau Claire, and we're in a very rapidly growing area, at, you know, adding several hundred members per year. That makes us a little bit unique. And then we just continue to look for services and ways to provide our community with um, solutions in the energy world. Monica, with having 10 years of experience with Eau Claire, you mentioned earlier that you know you're you're fairly young in this, and I, I find that common throughout the cooperative world that there are there are long term employees, uh, you know, 30, 40 plus years. What makes the cooperative model so successful in attracting and keeping employees for that long time? That's a great question. I think there's a number of things. I think the the business model is just very family centric and attractive to employees to to our cooperative. Also, we have excellent benefits. You know, people come to us and they realize that their long-term financial future is, is very stable here with the cooperative and they tend to stay. I think employees really value the connection we have to community, like I said earlier. And I think that's another reason why people stick around as long as they do. Karen, let's go to you. My home co-op, which is Price Electric, is in a very rural area. We have very little industrial load, um, about 45% seasonal, which um, makes for many challenges for our co-op. We have one of the most, the longest uh, distribution line in any of the co-ops in the state of Wisconsin, and probably the fewest customers per, per mile. So, you know, we're constantly discussing and then trying to be fair to the members, even though if you're a seasonal customer, you know, how do we still recoup 
uh, monies back from you as we would a resident that's here full time. We have about 9,000 members on our lines. Area-wise, we're one of the, the biggest co-ops in the state of Wisconsin. Definitely without that industrial load on our lines, it's a challenge and, and we want to be accountable to our members. So as far as you trying to be innovative, we're trying to utilize new technologies and, um, you know, still we're, we're surrounded by Excel. So, you know, we have a lot of members that we have to explain to them, you know, why our service fee charges might be uh, more than what they are with a with an IOU, but still trying to give the member the value of their power and still be efficient. Yes, I do agree with Monica on, you know, longevity of employees at the co-op and the benefits are are, are good for the area. You know, when you're, you know, Price County is one in the, in the top least 10 of um, like a poverty county. So, you know, that we offer good jobs and good benefits. That's that's really great for the area. With our current CEO, we are now getting much more active with the community, trying to put Price Electric's name out there and that we're a partner. Um, I know there's been some loans that have been available, like through the co-ops for small businesses that want to start up and start up on our lines, um, either, you know, low interest or low payback. And These are things that I think that co-ops, you know, they're fundamentally based on is helping the member and helping them succeed. Thanks, Karen. And I asked the question by saying, tell us how many customers you have. But I should have said how many members you have because your customers are each a member um, as part of the co-op, correct? That is correct. But I think when you're in this for a long time, you you just get used to, to hearing the customers versus the members. But you know, I just, it, it, once you've been in, been as part of this as all, we all have, we, we definitely see them as members, um, the capital credits that they pay in and they receive, you know, whatever the terms are for getting them back definitely makes them a part of the co-op. It's not like the IOUs who, you know, are just answering to investors. So. We'll only cringe if you call them rate payers. Then, then we'll cringe. <laughs> okay, got it. And we will talk more about the role of members within the co-op coming up here. But first, I want to hear from Nate and Robert. So, Nate, what makes Pierce Pepin unique? Yeah, so uh, Pierce Pepin is uh, located in uh, Ellsworth, Wisconsin. Um, we serve uh, Pierce County, Pepin County, uh, and then portions of Buffalo and St. Croix County. And you know, I think one of the things that makes us a little unique um, is our proximity to the Twin Cities metro area. Uh, if you leave our office and drive uh, 50 miles uh, to the uh, the west and northwest, you'll run into downtown Minneapolis. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of a classic story, like uh, many other co-ops where um, the investor-owned utilities and, and, and frankly, municipalities um, grew uh, into uh, dense areas and kind of left the the rural areas, you know. So in our area, that means uh, the area between uh, Hudson and Prescott, and between River Falls and Ellsworth, and River Falls and Prescott. Those those areas were left behind without electricity, and so we really were were created to help serve those rural areas. I think one one thing that also makes us a little unique um, is um, uh, like like Robert, we have started a uh, broadband company called uh, Swift Current Connect. Um, we have a uh, just a, a large portion of our population that uh, has traditionally commuted uh, into the Twin Cities area 
uh, for work. And so as the pandemic hit and really put a big spotlight on the challenges with connectivity out in our rural areas, it afforded us an opportunity to be able to step in and do what we did, you know, 80 some years ago by providing electricity to rural areas allowed us to step in and provide a reliable internet connection. And so it's been uh, something that's been a, a passion for us over the last few years to build this broadband network and and uh, really to, to help people uh, live connected lives, whether that's through having uh, electricity uh, or through having an internet connection. Um, it's something we're very proud of, of what we're doing here uh, at Pierce Pepin. That's so exciting and I'm sure much appreciated. All right, Robert. Back to you. Tell us more about Washington yeah, we're, Island. We're, we're unique because we're surrounded by water. So you do have to take a ferry line to get here. And actually our uh, our electricity comes through a cable that goes underwater. Uh, How long is that cable? Uh, it's about four miles. Wow. A little over four miles. And it's uh, uh, 160 feet of water is the deepest point. So um, again, we're, we're an island. We're the last... Uh, incorporated cooperative in the state of Wisconsin. We're also the smallest. Uh, we've got about 1,100 meters. Uh, that's a mix of roughly uh, 150 commercial meters, uh, which runs the gamut from farms and, and uh, community anchor institutions to actual businesses. And then the balance of them are residential. Uh, we're probably about 30% non-seasonal. <laughs> so we're, we're sort of in the same boat as Karen's co-op. Our homes are occupied almost all year round. Uh, we do have a number of them that close up in the wintertime, but it's a, it's a difficult thing to, to decide what our actual population is simply because uh, some people come in the winter, some people come in the summer, obviously busiest in the summer because we're a tourism oriented community. Uh, one of the roles that the co-op has really played much like Nate is, is economic development in the community. I mean, when you're, when your economy really depends on tourism, uh, it's, difficult to find something that is non-tourism based in order to diversify that economy. And, and uh, if you have a bad year in tourism, there's not a whole lot you can fall back on here. Uh, again, being completely surrounded by water and only accessible by ferry, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to come up with something that uh, will work on Washington Island from an economic standpoint. And that's, we've actually been involved in the broadband uh, or attempting to provide broadband for our members uh, since about 2005. We've been successful, much like Nate, in uh, some uh, Public Service Commission grant opportunities and uh, cable failure. That cable that I showed you is actually the new cable, but uh, cable failure actually led to uh, us manufacturing a new cable with fiber in it, which then allowed us to expand to the community. And we're actually connecting people every day right now. So um, so that's a, that's, a big, that's a big plus, and we are very member-centric. We also, uh, our members, there's no secrets from our members. That's what makes cooperatives uh, unique. Um, the, the members that say there are secrets are the ones that aren't paying attention. <laughs> because, I mean, we communicate on a monthly basis. We communicate on a daily basis. And, and we do tend to uh, listen to what our members need. Uh, and that's a, that's a lot different than most other utilities, I believe. I mean, we, we, we're probably, we're probably uh, we were customers first long before customers first was. Robert, you actually bring up a very important point about, you know, not having secrets or working together. Something I think is unique about cooperatives is the ability, you know, like maybe with IOUs, whether it's Excel, Line, where, you know, there's competing interests there that maybe they're not, they're not trading 
uh, ideas, technologies, whatnot. And the Quopper model really thrives on that. Could you talk a little bit more about how you as a manager work with other Quoppers throughout the state on whether it's a problem or ideas or, or anything else? Well, it's, I mean, it, it does, it is pretty simple. I mean, we do have a very good relationship with each other. You know, it's, uh, you know, the 24 cooperatives in the state of Wisconsin and other cooperatives in the country uh, do mix together quite a bit. And I know that if I've got a question on how I'm doing something and there's probably not a week goes by that there isn't some email that comes across my desk from somebody at a different role in the co-op that says, how are you guys handling this situation? And there's always answers. There's never been one of those emails that's unanswered. We're not, a, I mean, there's certainly a little bit of friendly competition as, you know, uh, between co-ops, but it's not like we're competing for members. So it, it becomes a, a collaborative effort. And I know that I don't have to reinvent the wheel on most things because I can send Nate an email and say, hey, what are you doing for this? Or I've run into this problem. What did, what did you, how did you solve it? And I know that I'm going to get a reply back. And that's, that's, that's really important. I mean, I, I could go into our cable failure issue um, that really is the pretty much the prime example of cooperation amongst cooperatives. Uh, you know, we're, again, we're tiny. Um, while some cooperatives are, you know, are spending millions of dollars on, on service upgrades and that sort of stuff. We had a, we had a $4.1 million. I have it right here. There's a $4.1 million hole, right? there. <laughs> and that happened in June of 2018. And um, obviously, we had to deal with repairing that cable and then replacing it. But then we also had to deal with the financial impact to a little tiny co-op like ours. And uh, the support that we got from every cooperative in the state and our, um, our state organization, as well as our national organization, was nothing short of phenomenal. Um, we ended up uh, being included in the in the state budget in order to help offset some of those costs. Uh, cooperatives were not uh, actually eligible for disaster aid. Uh, so if a tornado went through a cooperative or a situation like this happened where the governor declared a disaster, uh, we had to work through the county or the local municipality in order to uh, try and offset some of the costs for the damage that was caused by a disaster. As part of the efforts that we uh, as a group put together, we then became, uh, we were included uh, as uh, eligible for disaster aid. And that's probably bigger than the money that we got, to be honest with you, because that's that's a forever change. Um, and our members don't have to be, don't have to absorb those costs uh, because now we are eligible for disaster aid. And that happened because of cooperation amongst cooperatives and everybody talked to their legislators. And, and it started because of Little Washington Island having a problem with a cable. So I, I can't speak highly enough of the of the relationships between the cooperatives. And it's not just managers, it's it's line superintendents, it's personnel managers, the every 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 position, every position you can imagine. You have to tell us just a little bit more about what happened in 2018. How long were you without power and what happened to put that hole in the cable? Well we the the cable failed due to a cumulative damage due to ice shoves. So I mean it was it, was, it had been underwater for 40 years. It's Oakenite cable, which that's the manufacturer of the cable. They've got the same cable in places that it's that's been underwater for 100 years. So it's not like the cable um, deteriorated and failed. It actually had damage. And you can see piece, you can see this was actually scraped off by the ice. And there was, there was the bottom was scoured. It was in about 50 feet of water. It was, uh, 
happened in June, so it didn't happen when there was ice there. It just chose that time to fail. But that was June 15th or June 18th, June of 2018. We were without power from the mainland for 12 days. That does not mean that the island was without power because we have full uh, diesel backup generation. Uh, it's pretty expensive power when that happens, but uh, um, it's 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 there. So during this whole incident uh, from uh, the failure to getting the getting back on the old cable after it was repaired to installing the new cable and doing the switchover uh, attributable to that problem, we only had two and a half hours of actual outage time due to that cable. So that's uh, that was a that was a big deal, and we're pretty proud of that. That's incredible. Also, also, also included a an engine that stuck a valve in the middle of that, and we ended up on one engine. Uh, so it, it was a it was a one thing after another situation. So it seems that way. Since we're talking about power generation, let's stay there. And I'm hoping that you all could tell me a little bit more about where you get your power from, how it's generated, and how you deliver it to your members. Robert, do you want to start us off since you were just talking about your backup generation? We get our power off the grid just like everybody else in the state does. So, you know, our our uh, our power is generated at a coal plant in western Wisconsin or at a, a natural gas facility, you know, down south. We're, we're part of the Midwest Independent System operating uh, grid, so to speak. So my electricity is really the same electricity as Nate's over on the other side of the state. And it's a mix of all those different fuel sources. Um, and we just we just receive it a little bit differently. Nate, Nate and uh, Monica and, and Karen have got uh, a substation that they're tied into. Uh, we just happen to be at the end of the line. And uh, we, we get our power through the same American transmission company lines from a sister bay substation that's owned by Wisconsin Public Service. I think I'm the only one on the call here that's not a Dairyland member. There are a number of us in the state that aren't members of Dairyland, but uh, we purchase on a wholesale basis from Wisconsin Public Service, which is now obviously We Energies. Thank you. Nate, do you want to follow up on that? Yeah. As Robert mentioned, uh, you know, we're, we're members of uh, Dairyland Power Cooperative, which is uh, a member-owned G&T owned by the 24 cooperatives uh in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois, and uh, you know the 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 power market is is much more complex than it ever has been. Um, you know, as, as Robert mentioned, uh, we all participate in the MISO market and are sort of subject to a lot of the uh, the the rates and the rules and and the the costs of power um, that that come out of out of that market. But you know, I'd also just illustrate too that a lot of the the co-ops um, are have have diversified and and are putting up things like uh, solar uh, in their in their home service area, and um, I think some of that is is uh, member driven. Um, I know we have a pretty active uh, group of members that want to see us doing more with renewable energy and sourcing more power from from renewable sources, but. Um, we also have to balance that with reliability, and um, that's where having a, a partner like uh, Dairyland Power Cooperative helps ensure that uh, we have power to meet those those peak demand periods. And and so, you know, it used to be just kind of go get central state power and have it transmitted through your substations and down to your distribution lines, but it's it's much much more complicated than that today. And 
And, uh, and I think we're going to continue to see that evolution happen here over the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And hopefully the lights will stay on with that evolution because that's not a sure thing. Monica, let's go to you and then Karen will finish up getting your perspective as a member of the Dearland Board of Directors. All right. Well, I echo a lot of what Nate said, being another member of Dearland Power Cooperative. Um, we, I would maybe take this time to comment on a specific project that we have. We built a community solar array in 2015. It was the first um, community solar array in Wisconsin, and um, our members are fully subscribed to that array. Um, it's located right here behind our headquarters building. So I think that's an example of the innovation and um, projects that cooperatives have taken on and the, that will continue to take on into the future, whether that's, you know, battery storage, you know, microgrid, sustainable community, all those kind of things are things that cooperatives are paying very close attention to. And um, we, we want to be involved in that energy transition so that we can make the best decisions for our membership and for our cooperative. Thank you so much, Monica. And just a note for our listeners, we did have Monica's predecessor, Lynn Thompson, on the electric wire back in 2021 on our community solar episode. So you can go back and find that and check it out if you want to hear more about the Eau Claire Energy Cooperative Community Solar Project. All right, Karen, as a member of the Dairy Lind Power Cooperative Board of Directors, share your perspective. Um, I guess what I want to, I'll start out with is that when you're part of the GNT that has 24 co-op members and in four different states, so it's a large footprint. And I think what's so different from being on that board versus my home board is that board is is I think always on the forefront about the political aspects. How can we work with our members and in and working with legislation on both sides? All right, let's talk more. We were talking before about sort of transparency and um, sharing information with your members. Let's talk about the role your members play in the co-op and their role in helping shape policies and set rates. Monica, do you want to start us out? Sure. So um, it's the very foundation of what makes us unique. Our members um, elect members in the community. Their their neighbors and friends are elected to um, serve on our boards of directors. And through that board is how all of our rates and policies are um, implemented. So members have a direct opportunity to um, provide, you know, feedback or suggestions, or, and then we have, we all have processes in place if they, if they want to have something changed, whether it's with our bylaws or with policy. And I think that's what makes cooperative so special. We kind of have a saying around here that if you've met one co-op, you've met one co-op because we do have a lot of autonomous and independent um, ability to be flexible and to do what works best for us in our communities. What might work really great for Washington Island may not work so well for Eau Claire Energy. And so we do have that flexibility to be able to um, implement policy and, and rates that uh, work for our community. And I think that's, um, it's the foundation of what makes cooperatives cooperatives. Thank you so much. Nate, you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I think Monica did a great job. And I mean, I, the, the way I would maybe just uh, summarize is we're community owned and locally controlled. And, um, you know, there's um, kind of power given back to the people and choosing uh, their their directors. And and, and I would say that, uh, you know, uh, across the board, uh, 
the directors that, that serve at cooperatives, they, they take that uh, job seriously. And uh, they, they, they come to board meetings, uh, they're prepared, they ask tough questions. Um, because they ultimately know that it's the it's the entity that provides their community uh, electricity or or in some cases uh, broadband and and it's kind of interesting you ask that question because I'm looking here at a, a packet that's sitting on my desk and our board in our last board meeting uh, went through a board uh, self evaluation and uh, even our board uh, looks uh, introspectively at at how they're doing and and. Uh, ranks uh, the board as a whole, and then they also rank our, our chair too. And so, you know, I think that just really speaks to uh, how uh, co-ops are governed. And uh, I think it's a real testament to the structure that's been put in place. And it's why co-ops have, have been able to, to exist for, for over 80 years without um, really a lot of fundamental issues in terms of governance. I, I would say that I think what you will find too is that you'll find that there are a large number of co-op directors. That's not a universal fact, but I think it's it's a, a, a pretty common fact that a lot of the directors are just as long-term as the employees. And uh, because, the, because our members have the control over that, um, oftentimes when, when you're out recruiting, trying to get somebody to run for, uh, for a director's role uh, or advertising or telling people that there's an election coming up, you don't get a lot of response back because people are pretty satisfied with the directors that they have. Uh, again, they're members of the community. They're, uh, I mean, in our case, we've got, we have uh, business owners, we have homeowners, we have retired, um, we have people who uh, were only seasonal residents to begin with. Um, I mean, it's, we've got a pretty diverse board and it's a pretty long-term board. But again, they're they are they're members of the co-op just like the other members of the co-op. And I think that uh, uh, when you see when you see my board president who runs a local grocery store, they people see him every day. He hears about the good and the bad. But I think people are pretty satisfied with our transparency and with how how we do things. The diversity on the board, I think, is very interesting. My territory here in Price is trees, so I've had members that had trees taken down for right away clearing, where who were very angry that feel they were notified properly. And when I got in the boardroom, you know, I had another director that pretty much said to me, "Well, we're tired of hearing about the trees." And I said, well, that's my district. I don't come from farmland district like he does himself. So, you know, I feel it gives the members that, I mean, they called me up at home. They stopped at my place of business. They were unhappy. And when you come into the boardroom and, you know, it, you, it's a hopefully a collegial process but you are dealing, our board is nine members. It's a process to work through a problem, which, you know, nowadays seems kind of foreign to people, but I really think that, you know, it's a good process and you keep bringing desk directors from different areas and you work through the, the challenges. There's one thing I'd like to touch on uh, since it's been brought up in terms of, you know, having uh, policies in place or bylaws that govern how the cooperative works. So, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, cooperatives aren't necessarily uh, governed or, or regulated by the Public Service Commission of Wisconsin, um, that we have an entire chapter in statute, chapter 185, that really governs how cooperatives work. So I guess, would any of you be willing to, to touch on the advantages of that in terms of a cooperative's, um, their ability to be nimble when decisions 
need to be made that would would benefit the members of that cooperative? Well, I mean, I, I would just say regulation has a cost, right? I mean, um, if if you're dependent upon a entity to approve uh, rates, uh, you know, an outside entity to approve rates to to sort of govern your decisions, um, that that has a cost to it. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, who who bears the cost of that is um, the the consumer, in our case, a cooperative member. And so, yeah, I think it gives us the flexibility um, to have uh, make local decisions and to to make decisions that are in our best interest. Um, you know, to use uh, Karen's analogy, uh, right away clearing might be uh, you know a, a really uh, complex and, and challenging issue uh, in their service area, and it, and it is probably something completely different in our area. And it and if we had someone that uh, wasn't from either one of our service areas making that decision for us, that that could be challenging, right? Because they may not have the perspective that someone who lives in the community is local. Um, would have on that. So I think, you know, it's something that we uh, certainly appreciate. Like you said, it gives us flexibility, makes us a little bit more nimble. Um, it allows us to make decisions and move forward. We don't get bogged down in a lot of bureaucracy, uh, frankly, mo most of the time in, in our co-ops, we, we make a decision and we move forward. And, and I think, you know, that also helps us to make sure that we're um, providing uh, rates that are, are reasonable because we're not having to pay that that adder to, you know, to incorporate uh, the regulatory environment into our environment, into our, our business plans. So just to clarify, co-ops are not for profit and they are member governed. They're not governed by the Public Service Commission, but there is still a set service territory where the co-op is designated as the electric provider. And I would also just say, just for what it's worth, I think most of us um, try to follow or pattern um, you know some of our policies after how, how the other utilities in the state that are regulated so that we're not we're not sitting out on an island no offense Robert um, you know trying to uh, you know be different than everyone else I mean a lot of us follow the same sort of winter service disconnect rules and and uh, you know try to follow our penalties so that they're appropriate and and I think it's just you know we're trying to be uh, mindful that um, you know, we, we still have to protect our members and, and do it in a way that, um, th you know, through good, good policy making as well. That makes sense. Thank you. Let's, let's talk about some of those programs for customers. Affordability has been a big issue right now. So I wanted to ask, what are some of the things you do to help keep your members bills affordable? And what are some of the resources that you have available to help customers that are struggling to pay their bills? We're one of the, one of probably the minority of cooperatives that don't participate in Focus on Energy. We actually operate our own program, but much like Focus on Energy, uh, essentially we collect $16 per member per year, you know, per meter per year and put that into a fund. 50% of that goes towards energy conservation projects and 50% of that goes to low-income assistance. We are, we, you know, the, the county and various entities in the state uh, will evaluate what our, what our, uh, what income levels. I, I certainly do not want to uh, be evaluating my members' income levels to determine whether or not they're eligible for aid. So uh, that happens outside of outside of our office. Uh, however, we do maintain the we maintain the checkbook that we uh, uh, when somebody tells us what somebody's eligible for, then we help them with their bill. Uh, we also do a lot of communication uh, with our members. Uh, I mean, this Christmas season, 
uh, and it might even come, it might even come from Monica. I don't remember, but one of the, one of the, one of the co-ops talked about, uh, give the gift of energy. If you've got, if you know, one of your neighbors is struggling, you know, maybe, maybe you want to come in and talk to us in the office and say, Hey, I'd like to make an anonymous uh, gift to this, this member who's struggling. So we encourage that sort of thing, advertise it. Um, but I mean, all the programs that everybody else is involved, whether it be LIHEAP or, or whatever, we, we participate in those as well. So, uh, we are probably a little more personal. I, I don't know. I can't speak for the other co-ops, but I do know that I, I spend more time than I probably should uh, working with my members on uh, energy efficiency and how they can reduce their bills. Again, whether it be weatherization or whether it be just discussing discussing uh, what sort of heat source they have, what the efficiency is of it, what uh, you know, what the costs are. And whether they whether they if they're going to go down one road or the other, whether they want to think about some more insulation in their house. I mean, we do we do have a more personal relationship, I think, with our members because of that sort of a situation as well. Thanks, Robert. Monica, did you have anything else you wanted to add there? I'll just tag on that. Um, similar to the programs Robert mentioned, focus on energy is a similar um, a similar process where our members can receive rebates and incentives for um, having energy efficient appliance appliances, for example. Um, also here at Eau Claire Energy, we have staff that are dedicated to being energy advisors for our members. And that could be simple things from weatherization tips and you know how to, you, how to rotate your ceiling fans in the winter, all the way up to something much more complex like geothermal systems and um, envelope wrapping homes and <laughs> you know things of that nature. So I think it comes back to the the fact that we are we are there to educate our members on an ongoing basis, and we're also there to be a resource for their questions and for um, their their needs going forward. We do also participate with local entities um, for energy assistance. If there's people who are not able to afford their energy bill, um, we have entities we can refer our members to for assistance. And then we also we just do the right thing. We work with our members and and set up payment plans and and just do what we can do to really support our members in that regard. Yeah, I was just going to add on. I think you know one of the other things too is we you know we as an industry have spent a lot of time talking about efficiency and reducing consumption. But I think as important as that is, it's also important to uh, focus our efforts on getting. Uh, members to shift their energy patterns out of critical peak periods because more and more energy costs are going to be attributable to when energy supply is in uh, in, in short supply and, and when demand is high. And so, you know, we've been really, really working hard over the last couple of years. I know uh, Monica has a, a big LED sign uh, out on the side of their building um, that when when we have these peak periods, uh, to get members to shift their their energy into non-peak periods, and and in doing so, that's actually going to help us uh, lower uh, our costs to our members. Um, the more that we can do that, so there is an incentive for 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 the member in, in helping us um, shift shift the peak, help stabilize the grid as well, which can prevent those uh, no electricity times. I know historically co-ops have been leaders on issues like time of use rates and demand response. And I want to couple this question with what are you doing on those issues as well as how are you incorporating new technologies? Yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a really good question. Um, you know, it, and it kind of goes back to how much shift our, our industry is going through right now in terms of 
energy innovation and looking at technology to help um, not only us run the, the cooperative or the utility better, but also helping our, our members manage their energy um, better as well. And, and we're we're in the early stages of uh, deploying a new uh, demand response system or a load control system, which um, will help us uh, help our members uh, control during those those peak periods. Um, I think we have uh, a much, much more ability to connect with our members using our, our phones um, and, uh, and our devices. And so I think technology will play an increasing role in, in how we uh, engage, communicate, um, help manage um, our members' usage. And I think the other thing that, you know, we're seeing, uh, too, is, um, you know, when we start thinking about electric vehicles, um, you know, one of the reasons why why co-ops and utilities are promoting electric vehicles is because um, not only does it help reduce carbon, but it also helps um, with with energy uh, sales and and maybe recoup some of that lost uh, energy that we've we've lost to um, population decline and other things. But when you think about it, electric vehicles are nothing more than a battery with a big computer sitting on top of them, right? And so how we how we utilize, how we integrate, how we uh, start to think about even uh, adding those assets, uh, those battery assets into the grid. Um, all of that is going to come down to technology and and how we how we use technology to integrate that. So we're we're living in some really really exciting times and and uh, our ability to 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 use technology uh, for energy purposes is just going to be um, something that that's uh, really going to be exciting for for not only a lot of us here but but even for the next generation of of people that that grow up in our industry and, and our members as well. Nate, did you want to mention your Charge EV program at all? Yeah, well, I want to be careful. It's not my Charge EV uh, program. It's uh, the electric co-ops uh, Charge EV program. Um, but yeah, we're really excited. Uh, 31 electric cooperatives uh, came together. So all of the, the co-ops that are represented here today on the on the podcast are part of this. Um, so 31 electric cooperatives came together to create uh, Charge EV, uh, which is uh, really was set out to create a common brand uh, amongst uh, electric cooperatives that were installing uh, electric vehicle chargers uh, either in in the home or or even from a commercial standpoint. And uh, really, uh, as as this kind of became sort of a an initiative for the Upper Midwest, it's really turned into a national effort. Um, with the mission being that. Uh, we want electric cooperatives to have a national electric vehicle charging network. And, uh, you know, it's really it's really uh, taken off. Um, it was something, as I mentioned, that was homegrown right here in Wisconsin. Started out with 31. We now have 94 uh, electric cooperatives, I believe, in eight different states uh, spread from, from coast to coast and north to south um, that, that are part of that effort. And uh, we're really excited to, to watch that continue to grow. And uh, we think it's a it's a great opportunity for co-ops to not only promote electric vehicles, but but also to help with that range anxiety. Um, we know one of the biggest challenges with EV drivers is um, that they're they're hesitant to leave their their home service area. And so, if we can build uh, an, an infrastructure and a network that allows uh, our cooperative members to leave here and and they go up into to price electrics uh, service area and and know that they're not going to uh, uh, get uh, get stuck up there without being able to charge their vehicle or they want to go to Washington Island for 
for a week in the summer. Um, I know Robert's got chargers that he's going to allow our members to, to plug into and and to help promote um, uh, that on the island, which which also helps increase tourism and and uh, gives people that peace of mind. So we're really excited about Charge and uh, looking forward to the growth of Charge over the next few years here. So Robert, with the state ready to implement the NEVI plan, the National Electric Vehicle uh, Infrastructure Plan, and those those do- federal dollars are coming to the state to develop that network, you know. It's nice to see cooperatives being innovative in this, but you know how does how does uh, a group like Charge help you help the cooperatives help the state set the state up for success when this plan finally gets implemented? Well, the, well, the first thing I want to say is that Nate's being pretty humble because he was the larger driver behind this whole process, so um, the the credit really goes to him, and and and, if, and the blame goes to him too for adding something to all our plates. So. <laughs> But and, uh, and that's one of those one of those. I, I was at the meeting. I mean, I was the meeting. it wasn't like I missed the meeting. So I guess I, I get my own punishment. Right? So, but yeah, it's. I mean, some of the some of these uh, these national quarters. I mean, obviously, Washington Island is not part of any of these quarters that the federal dollars is going to be funding for for chargers. So it really is it really is up to us if we're going to serve our members. Um, we've got a little bit of a, a different issue than, than a lot of the other co-ops in that a lot of the other co-ops do view and utilities in general view this as a, as a load growth opportunity. Um, for me, it's a little bit scary because if I'm, if I'm running, uh, running my engines, uh, I've got to have a balanced load. And if I've got a, a pile of EVs out there uh, charged in, I can pretty much guarantee that uh, no matter how involved in the co-op my member is, they're not going to get up in the middle of the night and unplug their vehicle in order to make sure that I can keep the lights on. So uh, one of the things that really drove us to become a member of this was the fact that we do have a little bit of control over these chargers and um, we can we can enhance reliability uh, by having control over it rather than have uh, rather than have things just happen willy-nilly. Again, I think by having all the co-ops come together, we, we all see those different perspectives. And I think it just allows us to have a, a larger voice uh, in, in the process. Um, again, those a lot of those federal dollars are not coming my way because I'm not on one of those main quarters. I'm not, I'm, I'm at the end of the line. So it's up, kind of up to me to to do what I need to do. And I think that that's probably fairly typical for uh, for the other cooperatives as well who are out in the hinterland. Well, if I could just add on to what Robert said too, and and I think, you know, maybe where, where Rob was kind of going with some of this is, you know, collectively it gives us a, a vehicle, no pun intended, to, to help speak with our, our legislature about um, what co-ops are doing and how we're working together. And I, I you know, I, I mentioned this, uh, you know, that we're, We've been working on trying to get even a, uh, an electric vehicle license plate um, that would be state sponsored. And, and uh, I, I want Monica to talk a little bit about the, the training and the education they've done um, with their first responders around electric vehicles. But, you know, having a state sponsored license plate that, that says EV on it is going to help our first responders react appropriately to, again, this battery on wheels that's got a computer attached to it. So if you don't mind, I'm going to I'm gonna, uh, encourage Monica to jump in here and talk about what, what they've done. Like Nate said, 
these vehicles are different than anything we've been used to for decades, right? And so we need to educate all of everyone, including first responders, about what to do when these vehicles are in an accident, when there's a fire, when there's vehicle to vehicle collisions, and they have to find out how can they shut off the switch within the battery of the electric vehicle. And so we've partnered with um, several cooperatives around us to provide training to fire departments and EMT first response teams on um, how to identify an electric vehicle. And I think the license plate would go a long ways to helping that be a very quick visual confirmation because right now it can be hard to tell um, what between a combustion engine vehicle and an electric vehicle. So um, yeah, I think this is a great opportunity um, cooperatives have a long-standing tradition of being on the forefront of education, and this is just one of those opportunities um, to do that. So the final question that we ask all of our guests here on the Electric Wire is, if you had all the power in the industry, what would you do with it? Monica, do you want to start us out? Sure, this is a tough one. I, I had to think about this for a while because, you know, there's we are a complex industry and there's a lot of things I would love to wave a magic wand and, and change, but... Um, I think because we're cooperative, the thing that came to mind, and then maybe it's my member services background, it's would be to ensure that all every one of our members understood what it meant to be a member of the cooperative. I think if I could, if I could, like I said, wave the magic wand and make that happen, it would make our um, our processes and our education and our communication much easier because we find that we're getting further and further away from the generation that saw the lights come on. And so our members just expect us to be here and they don't really, they don't really understand sometimes why, what it means to be a member and what influence they could have um, on their energy use and, and on their cooperative. So, so that's the one I came up with. I, there's a, there's many, many things, but I think having our members understand the cooperative business model would be um, one of my first acts with all the power. I love it, Monica. Karen? Nuclear. I just, I think they're, you know, that the nuclear process, whether it's spent fuel, recycled cylinders, I just, you know, I it just, it's going to be a, if I could wait a wand and we could really start utilizing or experimenting with this in the next year, it just seems like some of these issues or matters, they have to be vetted for 10, 15 years and you know, I just, I can't, my dad was a Navy guy, you know, and I know all those subs were nuclear powered subs, you know, so I just, I don't understand the opposition, I guess, to nuclear. And if I could wave a wand, I'd, I'd like to see that, that technology come move a lot faster. So. Well, I want to go next so I can give Robert the last, the last word as he <laughs> normally uh, does so eloquently. Um, but if, if I had all the, the power, uh, I guess, for a day, um, I would sort of try to help uh, get us to a place where we recognize, and I, and I think this is, you know, sort of our society, but we seem to be so polarized on, on every single issue that, you know, it has to be my way or, or no way. And I think we've got to find some, some avenues to compromise. Um, the reliability of our grid is is one of the best things that we have in our in our country. It's it's why it's uh, often regarded as the single biggest um, achievement uh, of mankind. And um, you've heard the comments a couple of times today. If, if we lose reliability, what, what is the impact of that? And so, 
I think we have to find common sense approaches that um, balance, um, you know, both both sides of, of this issue, whether, um, you know, you, you believe that that 100% of our power needs to be from renewable sources, or, or you believe in, in, in fossil fuel burning technologies, but we got to find some middle ground in that to, to make sure that we protect the sanctity of of having uh, electricity and 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 being able to to use and consume that in a way that that continues to allow um, our our members and and really consumers across our our country um, the ability to to live their lives and to to do the things that they want to do that creates so much good for our society and so uh, I just hope that we can find that balance without uh, creating so much polarization that we have right now uh, in our industry and and frankly uh, across so many other issues. Well, I'm I'm the last guy, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna make Rob nervous. <laughs> Rob, maybe you'll be the last guy then. <laughs> I, I, you know, to, to echo a little bit of what Karen and Nate just said, um, if I had all the power, I would uh, get people to focus on what works, not on what's shiny. And there's a hell of a lot of shiny out there right now that doesn't work. Um, and you can take that however you'd like to take it. But uh, my, my goal is that my members like stay on. I'm one generation away from the not having electricity. Uh, I'm, I'm less than one generation away from indoor plumbing, to be quite honest with you, but uh, I want to see the lights stay on. And if we keep going down the path that we're going, uh, that is that is going to be uh, the norm. Uh, rolling blackouts will be the norm rather than the, rather than the exception. And the only way we do that, again, is focus on what works, not what's shiny. Thanks, Robert. Rob? I want to roll all of them up into one. I think what... What Karen, Robert, Nate, and Monica hit on are all critically important. Um, you know, our goal is to provide safe, reliable, affordable electricity. And moving forward, you know, we need to find ways to do that, as Nate said, on a on a, a political way that you know all sides can agree on uh, pushing forward. We cannot lose perspective of reliability, like like Robert touched on. And you know, I really like what Monica said about you know the 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 cooperative model and having people really understand what that means, how important it can be for your community, and that it really is one of one of the best ways uh, for for a electricity to be provided to a community is where all voices are considered and people believe they have a say in how that, that electricity is provided to them. Thanks, everybody. Nice chatting with you all. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please support our work. You can subscribe to the Electric Wire podcast if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at The Electric Wire. Thanks also to the members of the Customers First Coalition for supporting this podcast. Our members are Dairyland Power Cooperative, Madison Gas and Electric, the Municipal Electric Utilities of Wisconsin, WPPI Energy, the Citizens Utility Board, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 2150, and the Wisconsin Electric Cooperatives Association. Thanks again for listening. We'll have a new episode next month.